Hey everyone, good to be with you this morning. Uh, if we haven't met, my name is Tony. I have the privilege of being here on staff at Wellspring. If we haven't met, let's grab a, let's grab a walk or a phone call on these rainy days. Anyway, it's good to be with you this morning. We're just beginning our journey, kind of a long, slowish journey through the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible. Uh, Aaron, uh, where I started, I guess, two weeks ago in Genesis 1. Aaron went through Genesis 2 yesterday, and today we're in Genesis 3. Last week, Aaron set the stage, right? We talk, he talked about Eden and Adam and Eve and trees at the center of the garden, one of which we're not supposed to eat. This is what it says, Genesis 2.16, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day you will eat of it, you will surely die. Now, it just so happened our family last night, uh, Jeannie, Josiah, Claire, and I were reading through Genesis 2, and the kids were sort of hearing the story, and they had this question. It was actually a super insightful question, and one I'd never thought of, but it was like so intuitive. They're like, so why are Adam and Eve born adults? Which is like a no-duh kind of question, because who here, who of you or me, has ever seen a child born that isn't a child, <laughs> or a person come into existence that doesn't start as a child? And yet Adam and Eve are adults, so I'm, I'm stumped. And so I turn it back to them, and I'm like, well, what do you guys think? And their, their answer was really fascinating. They said this, well, they're probably adults because they're more likely to listen to God's words. It was interesting, this focus on listening, which actually becomes central to Genesis 3. And as the story unfolds, we'll, we'll see whether these adults are actually better at listening or not. Scene 1 of Genesis 3 starts with a crafty serpent or snake. Now, this term crafty is kind of ambiguous in Hebrew. On the one hand, it's a virtue, right, that the, the wise are invited to cultivate in the Hebrew Scriptures. And yet, when craftiness is separated from God, it becomes a means to evil. Now, surely this must have significance since scene one takes place at the base of a tree that is all about the knowledge of good and evil. But there's more. This word crafty in Hebrew has a very distinct sound. Uh, it's a room, which sounds almost identical to a rome, which is the Hebrew word for naked in verse 25, right? They were naked and unashamed. And what the author's doing is creating this contrast between the craftiness of the serpent and the innocence implied in the nakedness of Adam and Eve. Right, that's the subplot as Genesis 3 begins. And this crafty serpent asks this question. An apparently innocent question, verse 1. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now on the surface, there's nothing really inherently wrong about this question. But when you dig deeper, a few clues start to appear. One. Up until this point, God has been called the Lord or Yahweh. 
Now, the serpent simply refers to God as Elohim, which is kind of like a general name for God. It makes one wonder whether the author is hinting at the relational distance of the serpent from God. Second, the word actually stands out. Did God actually say? Right? There seems to be a layer of skepticism that's kind of baked in to the comment that runs really and significantly counter to the unbelievably generous provision of God in Genesis 2.16. Right? God lets Adam and Eve eat from any tree in the garden. But here, the serpent reframes the generosity of God as restriction, focusing on the one tree in the entire garden that they cannot eat. Now here, notice, right, Eve, she challenges in verses 2 and 3 the snake's leading question. I totally applaud her. How many of us When someone has sowed skepticism to us or about God in front of us, like actually challenge that person. But Eve does. The thing about it, though, her pushback is kind of revealing. First, she slightly misquotes what God has said. She says, we may eat the fruit of the trees in the garden, but she neglects an important word, every, right? We may eat every tree in the garden. That's a pretty petty or sort of minor error. She also adds that you can't even touch the tree of the knowledge of good and evil or you'll die. But God never said anything about touching the tree. She also adopts the serpent's name for God, Elohim versus Yahweh or the Lord, which begs the question, of whether before the serpent even showed up on the scene, whether Eve was already drifting. Maybe she was, maybe she wasn't, we don't know. What we do know is she uses the same name for God as the serpent, and she misquotes his prohibition. Now to this, the serpent pushes back a little bit in verses 4 and 5. You will surely not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God knowing good and evil. Now, the serpent knows that Eve's knowledge about the tree isn't super accurate. And so he pushes harder. He tries her to get her to question the knowledge she already has. Right? That eating the tree's fruit does lead to death. Instead, he tries to convince her that eating the tree will actually benefit her. Your eyes are going to be opened. You'll be wise. You'll be like God. Not a bad sales pitch. Right? Who doesn't want to be wise? Who doesn't want to walk through life with their eyes open, right? Who wants to walk through life with their eyes closed? Who wants to be a blind person, right? Who wants, we all want to see what is real and true. What's so incredible about this story to me is the snake only speaks twice. But it's uh, enough to upset the balance of trust and obedience between man and the woman and their creator. All the snake has to do is imply 
that God is keeping beneficial knowledge from Adam and Eve to upset their relationship. And what seems to be important, at least from the author's perspective, is that from the very first words of Genesis 1 and 2, all we have seen is God's generosity and His provision, right? His goodness, that He's making all these good things for them to enjoy, right? He's provided a good creation for them. He's invited them to rest with Him. He has formed humans and found a helper for Adam, right? So he didn't have to be alone. He's given them all the trees to eat. And yet, all it takes in this ideal environment is for a little nudge from the snake to upset it all. Which brings us to scene two, verses six through eight. I'm going to read them. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eye and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. That was a lot to say here. First, having listened to the serpent, now... Eve sees that the tree is good, which is clearly a contrast from Genesis 1, right? Genesis 1 about all about God looking and seeing that what He has made is good. And what's vital to see here is that Eve's temptation is not presented as this clear, defiant rebellion against God. It's seen as or portrayed as a quest for wisdom, seeking the good apart from God's provision. Right? Take it out of this story and place it into our lives just for a second. Right? The woman's reasoning might sound like this, you know. She sees an opportunity to become wise, even noble, and she takes it. How many of us, if we are honest, have made decisions, like we weigh the pros and the cons and we we do what seems best to us? How many of us have made decisions looking at the terrain and thought, yeah, I'm going to go this way without actually thinking about what God might say or what His opinion might be? My guess is that all of us at one time or another have done that. The point is this. The author of Genesis 3 wants us to see the relationship between the fall and the quest for human wisdom, right? The disobedience of humanity is depicted not so much as this great act of wickedness, as an act of great folly and foolishness, right? They had all the good they would ever need in the garden, They could have learned all the wisdom they needed on slow walks with God in the afternoon breeze. But instead, Adam and Eve, they take a shortcut and they end up lost. They thought they would become like God. Ironically, they were already made in His image. They thought they'd be wise, that their eyes would be opened, and in a way, they are. Now, 
they see that they're naked. They feel shame as they see each other's difference. They sew leaves together to hide their differences from one another. And then as God approaches, right, they hide from Him as well. I want us to pay attention here to the fact that they hear God walking, because this is really important. As the Bible unfolds, there's going to be this very intentional and consistent focus on the connection between hearing and obeying. In Hebrew, the word shema is going to be the word that actually says both things, right, in one word. To hear is to obey. So what's going to happen in the Hebrew mentality is the key element of the spiritual life actually is not attaining wisdom, but to hear and obey the voice of the Lord, right, as my kids said, right, like, It's all about listening to the voice of God. That's not what happens here, right? Having eaten the fruit, they hear and they hide. And as the story of the Scriptures play out, what we're going to see is when Israel gathers at the base of Mount Sinai, they're going to hear the Lord arrive on the mountain. And what do they do? They hear and they move away. And the writers of the Torah are telling us something important. The Israelites, the Hebrew people, they haven't learned that first lesson in the garden. They haven't dealt with their first sin. What's important to not miss, right, even within the Torah, even within Genesis, is that faithfully following God isn't about rules, but about listening. Abraham is commended for listening to the voice of God in Genesis 26. It's why John, when he sort of talks about the ministry of Jesus in his gospel, he is constantly talking about, and out of the mouth of Jesus saying, all I do is I hear the Father speak and I do what he says. Right? We studied through the gospel of John a couple years ago. We'd hear this like every other week. What does Jesus do? Oh, I just listen to the voice of the Father and do what he says. Jesus does what Adam and Eve and Israel fail to do. He listens and obeys. Now, before we shift to scene three, I just need to sort of make a couple points of clarity, one in particular. One, so often, often in the West, is we read this story and think, man, let's just lay the blame at Eve's feet and kind of Get Adam off the hook. But I want to say this is neither fair nor biblically accurate. One, Adam is the one who is told the rules in the garden, not Eve. Second, Adam takes the fruit and eats without much convincing. And three, and this is more important, later biblical writers actually put the primary blame at Adam's feet. Paul in Romans, right? This is his most sophisticated theological treatise when he deals with the fall. He clearly lays the blame at Adam's feet in Romans 5. So let's, let's, let's not just say, oh, it's all Eve's fault. It's not. They're both culpable in this situation. But back to our story. Adam and Eve, right, they flee into the trees. Which brings us to scene 3, verses 9 through 13. Right, so God walks up. And as Adam and Eve are hiding in the trees, he's like, hey guys, you know, where are you? I think it's rhetorical. Now, just sort of, and the way I think about it is like this. So, when I play hide-and-seek with my kids these days, they're like legit good. Like, 
My kids, you go in the backyard, if you play hide-and-seek in the backyard, they will tunnel under our back porch. You will not find them, I guarantee you. Inside, they will find the tiniest crevice in their hamper, dirty clothes hamper, and pile clothes on top of their head like they disappear. Three years ago, when they hid, they would hide under a bench. Just their head and their entire body would be like dangling out, you know, and you'd like step over them like, I don't know where they are, you know. I think it's more like that. God goes over there, where are you guys? And he sees them on the other side of the tree. And Adam and Eve, I think, seem to get this. They don't say, oh, we're over here, you know, hiding. Instead, in response to their question, they emerge from the tree and they explain themselves. The reply shows that they understood God's question as an invitation to talk. Notice, though, Adam doesn't take responsibility for what really happened. Instead, he talks about what took place after what really happened. Verse 10, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Right? He doesn't talk about what really happened. He talks about what he did after what really happened. The problem is, you know, Adam's still learning this good and evil thing. And he, in his very reply... He tells God what really happened. Verse 11, how did you know you were naked? Let's talk about the tree. And now, again, Adam has a choice, right? Is he going to come clean? Not really. For the second time, he sidesteps the real issue. Now he blames Eve and God. Verse 12, the woman you gave me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate it. It's her fault, God. Right? Adam turns on the very person who was given to him as a partner that God gave to him as a gift, and he blames both her and God for giving her. It's their fault. And then God turns to Eve, right? And she does the same thing with the serpent. And within moments, sin has divided God and humankind, man and woman, animal kind and humankind. Which now brings us to scene four. What's interesting in scene four is that this is verses 14 through 21. God actually doesn't give the snake or the serpent room actually to share his perspective. Instead, he curses him. Right? More cursed than all the other wild animals. Importantly and textually, he only curses the serpent. He doesn't actually curse Adam and Eve. More specifically, he proclaims right, that the serpent's offspring and the woman's offspring will be forever in conflict. Now, a lot of theologians think this is not simply about snakes and women, but actually becomes more symbolic, about a battle between life and death good and evil. And actually, Paul picks up on this idea in Romans 16. This is Romans 16, 19 through 20. I want you, Paul writes, to be wise as to what is good, innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Now, you maybe have read this before, but now I want you to read it in light of Genesis 3. 
these like little bulbs should be going off in your head. Wait, wait, there's a lot of cues and key words here. The word wisdom, right? All of Genesis 3 takes place at the foot of a tree of knowledge and good and evil. It's all about wise, being wise and who we can trust, right? The word good is here. God saw it was good. Eve saw it was good. The word innocent is here. They were naked and unashamed. Crush is here, right? There's a battle between the serpent and the woman, right? And the serpent's head is going to get crushed. And Paul adds in Satan here, right? The one who is crushed. So while the curse is clearly focused on the serpent in Genesis 3, Later theologians also apply the temptation to sin to Satan, right? who in the end will be crushed by God. Now, I want you to slow down for a second, because I think sometimes we make these connections without actually sort of realizing their significance. This means that at the very, very beginning of the biblical narrative, God is promising a coming snake crusher that will come from the seed of woman, that will be born of woman, who will defeat evil at its source while simultaneously being hurt by the serpent. In other words, in Genesis 3, we are foreshadowing of a wounded victor. We are seeing In Genesis 3, a picture of a crucified Messiah. One who in the process of saving will be hurt. A suffering servant. Baked into the very beginning of the Genesis story. Now after talking to the serpent, God actually talks about the consequences of the fall for Adam and Eve, for man and woman. And the way this will work out is so far in Genesis 1 and 2, there's been these clearly appointed roles for men and women, right? They, they have sort of things they are going to be called to do or are called to do, ways that they're blessed to contribute and partner with God. And what we'll see is that these roles are disrupted, God speaks to the woman, right? The woman and her husband were supposed to enjoy the blessing of children, right? In chapter 1, verse 28, right? Go forth, be fruitful and multiply. They're blessed to procreate. Also, right, they're meant to have this harmonious partnership. She's meant, Eve is meant to be a helper, right? And that's not derogative. That's not servant. God is described as helper, right? Eve is meant to be a helper, a partner to Adam, And we see is the consequences of the fall relate to these specific things, right? What the woman was once to do as a blessing, have children, be a partner, now become tainted by the fall. Childbirth will be painful, and the partnership with Adam will be a struggle. And this affects Adam as well, right? Isn't like this disunity between Eve and Adam is limited to her alone, right? When relational friction happens in marriage, in intimate partnership, right? Both people are affected. What's important to note is that 
the outcomes of the fall, though they're spoken to men and women in particular, they affect each other. The same is true with what God says to Adam about work. Adam was specifically blessed, right, before the creation of Eve with working and keeping the garden in Genesis 2.15. So it makes sense, right, that after the fall, that core thing that Adam is called to do is damaged. Now, it's not that work is the problem, right? Work is part of mankind's contribution before the fall. What's problem now is that there will be toil. There will be hardship. Every day that Adam works will be a reminder of the amazing provision he had in Eden and now how hard he has to work, how much he has to toil in order to get what he had before at almost no cost. And it is the hardship and frustration that attends to work that is the consequence. Right? Which brings us now to scene 5, verses 21 and 24, through 24. What's staggering to me is this scene begins with God's kindness in the midst of humankind's transgression. Verse 21, And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. I imagine it, right? Adam and Eve, like, try and put fig leaves on their body. Now, five minutes into these fig leaves, like, they're ripping. Like, these fig leaves are not very effective, Even though they didn't listen to him, God is still kind to them. But he meets them where they are. They feel shame in their nakedness, so what does he do? Right? He makes them clothes. He doesn't shame them. He doesn't say, oh, well, you're the one who ate from the tree. This is the consequence for your choice. He makes clothes. Now, both personally and in pastoral ministry, I find that people kind of fall on one side or the other. They kind of approach God as like judge who is holy and other, and we think, man, God is so big and powerful. Or we often approach Jesus or God through Jesus as like gracious and kind. And sometimes we have a hard time holding both of those at the same time, that God is judge that God is holy with the kindness and mercy of God. And yet, that is exactly who God is shown to be in Genesis 3. He articulates the consequence of their trespass. And He kindly cares for them. Right? He's judged, but He is gracious. And so when we get to the New Testament, and we read about Jesus... And that he's welcoming prostitutes and he's welcoming tax collectors and he's welcoming all these people that are marginalized in their society. We shouldn't be surprised that he also tells everyone that wide is the way that leads to destruction and narrow is the way that leads to eternal life. Right? Jesus combines the kindness and mercy and welcome of God while at the same time not compromising on God's judgment, his holiness. His call for us to be more. Genesis 3 shows us that God is judge, but He is also kind. My guess is, Adam and Eve, as they decided to eat this fruit, right, they assumed that knowing God 
you know, being like God, knowing good and evil, like, would only have an upside. Like, I don't know, being, being, knowing good and evil, that sounds pretty good. Like, I'd like to be wise. Be like God? Sure. Instead, what they discover is that to be like God in this way is to no longer be with God. They discover that true joy and goodness does not consist, right, in being like God in this way, but rather in being with God and enjoying His presence in the garden. The text says, verse 23, the Lord God sent Him, sent them out from the garden of Eden. Right, gone are the afternoon walks in the breeze with God. Gone are, is the plenty, the provision of Eden. Gone are the relationships without conflict and tension. Gone are those days of work that were just fun and weren't filled with toil and hardship. Adam and Eve experienced the loss in that moment. But as we know, right, the story isn't over. Even though Adam and Eve are sent out of Eden, what we will see, what is so profound about the biblical story, is that God will leave Eden too. He will enter into their loss. He will follow them east of Eden. So much so that when we get to the New Testament, God will enter into the full loss of the human predicament. He will take on human flesh. He will move into the neighborhood. And when he is crucified, he will be kicked out of the city. He will be strung up as a criminal. He will take our judgment upon himself that we might be restored back into relationship. We will be, have the privilege of going back into the garden, be restored back into the whiff and the presence of God. Now, one of the things um, we want to do in this series is try and help connect a little bit, like the connection between the, the initial stories that we're reading in the Old Testament and how they play out going forward. Right? And Genesis 3 obviously shapes the entire biblical narrative. Right? It's because of the fall that God takes on human flesh to save humankind, to restore our relationships. And... Within the Torah itself, right? The Torah is the five, first five books of the Bible. Genesis 3 is constantly echoed back, especially at the building of the tabernacle and the temple. In verse 24, the author writes this, And at the east of Eden he placed, right, the cherubim, type of angel, and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Right, so if you fast forward a little bit, when the tabernacle and the temple are built, right, the way you enter them is through the eastern wall, like you're coming from east of Eden back into the garden, back into the presence of God, which is a way of saying that when we go to the temple, when we go to the tabernacle, we are returning to the presence of God, right? This is why on the walls of the temple, you actually, in the tabernacle, you have pictures of angels as a reminder of this is the way back to the presence of God. 
It's why when we get to Revelation 22, right, after Jesus has died for us and He returns to make all things new, right, when they go into the new Jerusalem, what do they find? The tree of life. All of the curses, all of the separation that happened in Genesis 3 are overcome. And now we're back in the presence of God with the tree of life, back to the provision that we've lost. That's Genesis 3. Now the question is, how does that sort of speak into our life? Right? And there's a thousand ways to go here. I'd like to focus on one. As I was sort of thinking and praying, this one just kind of kept coming back to me. And it's the ordinariness of Eve's exchange with the snake. The serpent only spoke twice. And things so easily came crumbling down. And that was in the ideal conditions of Eden. (laughs) Much less our broken, fractured world. Sometimes I wonder just whether we pay enough attention, actually, to the way that sin and temptation work in our lives. As a church, you know, we're often talking about Jesus is the answer. Like, we need to submit our lives to Jesus and His kingdom. And 100%, amen. I also do need wonder if we need to be aware of the ways that we might be tempted away from His presence. Sometimes I think we view sin as like this obvious, mean, and intentional act by like malicious actors. It's like, oh, they're mean, they're evil, they're sinners. And yet, that isn't the story told in Genesis 3. Genesis 3 is all about human beings going their own way, choosing for themselves what's, what's good and what's evil. It's often, right, it's pictured as often the subtle difference between following the invitation to trust God and simply doing what seems most natural to us. In my experience, each of us are tempted in unique ways. We have like a a nice groove that we get into when it comes to temptation that just feels natural. Our family came together this week and we were sort of brainstorming, how how does temptation work uniquely for each of us in our family? And we had a conversation about it and Claire, uh, who's about to turn 10, she said for her, like, it's kind of this, like, she's really tempted by, to hold a grudge. When she gets angry, it's like she kind of wants to nurture and hold on to that grudge. For Josiah, he said that really what he's tempted to do is eat all the ice cream in the fridge and not tell anyone. And if someone asked, he might say, I didn't do it. There's this temptation towards deceit. Jeannie, right, my wife, she said... She kind of has this temptation to focus on all the external things going on in her life. I clean a room here, shop here, eat something here, just all the different things going on rather than paying attention to what's actually going on internally. Now for me, one of the things I'm very aware of or becoming increasingly aware of is how for me, I can sort of give into this temptation that this world is just full of scarce resources particularly time and emotional energy. And I get into this posture of self-preservation where I'm constantly defending for my time and my emotional energy. 
And what it does is it sort of undermines, well, God, I don't know if I really trust that you will provide what I need. And it undermines my relationships with my wife or others because I'm sort of thinking in my head, like, are they going to actually care what I want or do I need to defend myself? And in the end, it can leave me feeling very alone. See, the thing about temptation when we give into it is it almost always leads to loss. We see this in the garden. We see this with Adam and we see this with Eve. Right, when Claire and Josiah give in to their temptation, right, it, for whether it's deceit or anger, right, it undercuts the relational connections in our family. Right, for Jeannie, when she focuses on the external, it's very easy then to lose touch with what's really going on inside of her. Right, for me, when I'm focused on this world as a place of scarce resources, and I feel like no one else is going to fight for me and I need to fight for myself, I cut myself off from God and others. And I guess as we enter this week, I invite you to consider, you know, what are the paths of temptation that you are most tempted to travel? And if you were to look at your life this week, what are the constant ways that maybe you're sort of tempted away from the presence of God, tempted away from a posture of trust? to doing what is right in your eyes. My guess is it's going to be unique for each of you. What is your well-traveled path of temptation? Do you know? If you don't, I encourage you to really explore that this week. And then the second question is this. Having identified that well-worn path of temptation, what is the loss you experience as a result? Because I don't think it's quite enough for us just to recognize the path. I think if we're going to actually want to change, we actually have to experience the loss. What is it that we don't get by going down that path? Maybe it's the way it affects our posture with God. Maybe it's the way it affects our posture with other people, our relational connection. How does it affect you in your life? I realize that's, that's kind of some hard work, but I also think this. I'm going to ask you to do one more thing. Once you figure that out, tell someone. Because this is my conviction. No amount of personal insight is going to make it so that you are capable of just like taking that out of your life. We need other people to walk with us in order to practice the way of Jesus. Right? If it was just, hey, just learn it, God would have created us, put us on little islands and had us fend for ourselves. That's not the way he created us. Right? He formed a people. That's why he created a church and a community so that we could bear one another's burdens, so that we could pray for one another, so that we could walk with one another. Now, I want to invite the worship team up. We're going to just sort of go into one last song. But as we do, I just want us to agree on something. One, like, we are all broken sinners. We are all tempted. Like, let's, let's not pretend that it's somehow otherwise. Like, as a culture, as a place, let us set aside pretense, and let's just say, hey, guys, we're all a work in progress. Two, I think having done that, we can truly relish 
and enjoy and appreciate the grace of God. Right? That this isn't some self-help gospel where you just have to figure it out on your own. No, no, no. Jesus comes to forgive us. It is by Jesus' grace that we are restored. Right? And God didn't wait for us to get our act together. He did not wait for us to be healed. He did not wait for our world to be perfected before He took on human flesh, before He walked in our shoes, before He died on a cross on our behalf. He did it before we got our act together. Right? This is the grace and mercy of God. Right? Even though we have gone east of Eden, he goes east of Eden after us, right, in order to make a home for us. And so with that in mind, let's invite us into Jesus' presence. Lord God, we ask that you would be with us. God, we ask that you would reveal yourself to us. God, we ask that you would show up. This morning, God, you would reveal our hearts, our ways of temptation to us. You would give us eyes to see. God, the the well-worn paths of temptation. God, you would give us eyes to see the loss we experience. God, that we might know you. God, that we might love you. God, that we might be transformed into your image. Pray this in your name.